chapter 16, 28, going into 17. Uh, before, quick, quick review, and I'll try to make it as quick as possible, because it's quite simple. Last week, we talked about disciples carrying their own crosses. Um, we discussed what that means. Um, Jesus said it pretty well, because that's what he does. He says things excellent, and so we learn from him. And he says, then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple. So these are his disciples he's talking to. So they're like, hey, um, I'm already a disciple. But like, listen, if you want to be a disciple, you must. So it's not like a super disciple he's talking about here. He's talking about the, the prerequisite. This is the lifestyle of a disciple. You must deny yourself. So being a disciple is a life of, I guess we can call it humility. But it's about self-denial. It's not looking out after one's in, own interests and one's self and one's ideas and one's, you know, benefits. It's about looking out for another thing. Another thing, something else, looking outside of oneself. And I'm not going to just say it's about looking out for others, even though that could be a part of it. It's about looking out towards Christ and what Christ wants, because he's the Lord. So you, in order to follow Christ as a Lord, you have to say no to the lordship of oneself. So denying oneself, taking up their cross. Again, a cross is an instrument of death. So literally, a disciple dies to oneself almost like becomes numb to the feelings of one's desires and then following Christ. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. And here's the amazing, like, kind of, just, the, here's, here's the wonderful mystery puzzle solved of life itself. So many, and it's human nature to want to self-preserve. I'm gonna find life through riches maybe, through popularity, maybe, through uh, good feelings. And if I can't find it through positive things, maybe I'll find it through negative things like drugs and alcohol. But I need to find life. I need to enjoy things. And so human nature is to, 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 to chase around looking for these things, looking for life. It's not Zoe. This one was um, um, where we get psyche, pasukie. Life. And he says, in order to find it, you've got to stop the chase. You've got to stop the pursuits that are self-centered and self-focused. You need to lose that life and find real life in Christ. Real life is found in Christ. He will show you. And the funny thing is, it's eternal life. It's true life. It, it seems odd to deny oneself. See, it seems odd to say no to oneself because it seems like you're losing out on things. And I think that's one thing I think young Christians always struggle with. It's like, but I don't want to lose out on life. I don't want to lose out on what all my other friends are getting up to. But to say no to those things and to find Christ is to find real life. So to sum that up, we may think that we have all of life figured out. We don't want to lose out on what we have gained for ourselves. This is delusional counterfeit life. That's how we called it last week. Rather, we need to get rid of this counterfeit kind of life and follow Christ. Then we may discover real life, the life that God has designed. Don't forget who the designer of life is. It wasn't our mommies and daddies, it was God. God designed life. God's the origin of life. God is the creator of life. 
So a quick little slide here. We'll just go through it really quickly. It's kind of a cheeky slide I found. And so I decided to put it up. It's just a bunch of people carrying their crosses. And then you got him kind of like struggling because carrying a cross can be a bit heavy. And so he asks, Lord, it's too heavy. Please cut it down a little. And then down here, he's chopping it away. And he's leaving a bit of cross behind. And then he's walking. Everybody's got bigger crosses. His cross is a little bit lighter, so he's doing all right. Next slide, please. And he goes, Lord, please cut it down a little bit more so I'll be able to carry it better. Which makes sense. Hey, God, if you, if you make life easier for me, then you know what? It'll be easier for me and I can serve you better maybe or I can do this better maybe. I can give more to the church maybe or I can do the yada yada, whatever. So God, make things easy for me. And then they get to this big, huge trial. This gap. Now bear in mind, I, I, when I read this article, there was information with it. And it's not about salvation, by the way. It's not about loss of salvation. This is about when you need character, basically. I think that's how the person described this. It's like when the trials come, maybe to help someone. Maybe to overcome a trial, maybe to, to where, where, where character is required that is filled with Christ, not with oneself. That's what I think the gap is. So it's not about salvation here. It's about being there when the time comes, where you need the strength that comes. It's like, like a weightlifter or a runner. We have athletes in here in the room. So you have to exercise. It hurts. It's sore. But when the time comes when you need it, when you need it, you're glad you got it. And I think that's the same thing with cross-carrying as far as our spiritual life is concerned. And so, interesting little story. Um, let's use this as a bridge to cross over, but you can't do it if your cross is too small. Cheeky, silly, something to think about. I don't know. Next slide. The metamorphosis of Jesus Christ. That's where we are today. And yes, God did stick his face through the clouds. I always joke about that. Like, I won't believe God unless he sticks his cloud, face to the clouds and, and shouts my name. Well, he actually did do that, and we're going to see that this morning. He didn't have to, but he did. And I'm kind of glad he did. It's a powerful little thing we got going on here. And so we pick it up in Matthew 6, 28. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here are, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And again, this in context is about his deity. Okay, it's in context about Peter confessing the deity of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And indeed, they did see him in his kingdom just six days later. And so it says in 7.1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured. The reason why I put metamorphosis, because it transfigured, it comes from the Greek word met metamorphosis. <laughs> and so it means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. He was changed before the very eyes. And this is amazing because already we've seen Jesus do so many amazing things, so many miraculous things. But now these three fellas, and bear in mind, I want you to pay attention to the audience. He's not doing this for the world. He's not doing it for the unbelieving folk. He's doing this for believers. He's like, you guys already, Peter's already confessed. And so Peter gets to go. Maybe James and John confessed as well, but it wasn't documented. I don't know. But for some reason, Jesus chose these three people to come and see the glory of Christ and his divinity unfolded before them. So Christ's appearance was changed and was resplendent with divine brightness on the mount. And that's what we're seeing here as it goes on to say, there 
He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. It's almost like it reminds me of Moses when he came down from being with God um, on Mount Zion when he got the, 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 the commandments from God, how the Shekinah glory was upon him and the people saw him glowing. It's like that, the divinity there. So that his face was, was, was shining like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. This is them testifying, this is them seeing this firsthand. And then also here they see something very interesting. They're here, they also see the appearance of Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now I added Luke 9.31 on the, on the back of this because it's very important. I don't know why Matthew didn't add this, but Luke added this. And so we know it's true. And this is the content of the conversation that Moses and Elijah were having with Jesus. So Luke 9.31 says they spoke about his departure or his death. So again, this is about the mission. This is about what needs to be done. Okay, this whole chapter, I hate to say it, but 16, 17, quite morbid because a lot of it's about the death and suffering of Christ. But it's important. This is where, where things start to get real for us. Um, and again, so, there, so Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the other the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, these attendants are all believers in God. With Moses, we have represented those who've died in faith. Okay? Not really dead, but not with us just now, kind of dead. That makes sense, you know. Paul talked about that, you know, Thessalonians. When he says, you know, we, we will be with them again, you know. We'll talk about that more later, obviously. But, but, but when people die, they don't, when they die in Christ, they don't really die, you know. They're just, they're just waiting for us <laughs> to catch up to them. And then you got Elijah, who was odd. He was kind of <coughs> raptured. You remember his life, Elijah, how he was taken. Or he was, this represents the missing of the taken. But you remember he, how he was taken up into the, into the sky with that chariot. And, and, you know, and he just kind of a strange thing, Elijah. And so uh, the Jews were, are constantly waiting and looking for Elijah. In fact, we're going to talk about that later on today. Where's Elijah? He didn't die. He just disappeared. Where did he go? And then, of course, you have the disciples. And that's believers who... In God, who still are alive on earth today. So we got this interesting, it's almost like a worship service. This should be what worship's about. It should be us coming together to, to, to see the, the shining face of Jesus Christ, to worship him, to acknowledge him. And here, I, I this verse, I've been using this a lot. Really, we need to all just get involved with what God's doing here on earth, hear what he can do with us as a fellowship and taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's an opportunity. These three guys had this awesome worship opportunity to taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Next slide. So Jesus, he is coming. How you might say? By majestic power. Or Peter remembers the transfiguration. Here's Peter's. Uh, later on, we'll, we'll discuss how Jesus tells uh, Peter and James and John not to talk about this until after his death and resurrection. So here's Peter accounting for it in retrospect in 2 Peter 1, 16, 18. And Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about his coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Again, here's a content. Again, authenticating who Jesus is. We've already seen the miracles. You know, God revealed to Peter <coughs> who Jesus is. 
And now here's God, we're gonna see in the, very soon here, very soon we're gonna see God himself shouting down at the people, declaring once again that this is Jesus, is the son of God, whom he, Jesus says, yeah, two thumbs up, son. I love him and I'm pleased with what he does. What he's doing is well, it's right. We ourselves, Peter says here, heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So this is Peter's testimony of the transfiguration. Um, and then going on, though, this is Peter again. He's excited. He's fired up. And he's looking at the cultural significance of here. And so here he's starting to think of a, a certain holiday or holy day called the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's what comes to his mind here. And that's why he says in Matthew 17, 4, Peter saying to, to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. And that's what they would do during the time of tabernacles. It was a time of celebrating or to remember the time in which Israel were out in the wilderness waiting for the promised land. So it's about waiting for the promised land, waiting in a temporal kind of place. So they have these tabernacles or these little shelters. So he's thinking, let's celebrate this holiday, this holy day, this holiday, whatever you want to call it. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And so he's well-intentioned. You know, and again, this, this, this feast of the tabernacle, we'll look at it in a moment here just to get more information about it. It's kind of an interesting thing. But it's him looking back when Israel wandered in the wilderness. You know, looking forward to the gathering of God's people in the promised land. So again, maybe in Peter's mind, he's thinking, well, here it is. Here is the promised land. Here is God's kingdom fulfilled in its completeness right here before us. Let's celebrate it. There's still more work yet to be done. So Peter, I think, is a little bit jumping the gun here. But next slide. Let's look real quick at this special holy day or holiday called you know, the, the feast, which God t told Israel that they need to celebrate to remember a very important historical thing. And it gives us opportunities, these holy days, to remember what God has done and will do for his people. They give opportunity to pause our ordinary mundane lives in devotion to him. And again, I think it's important. The, the Sabbath, um, you know, day of the week, the time, that's a special day devoted to God where you stop the ordinary or the mundane, you know, life, work, the things we do that's regular, to spend time with God. And not only that, but certain days of the year, we see here certain days of the year where people stopped and they devoted to the Lord. So here in Leviticus 23, 33, 43, we have God giving them the command to, to, to acknowledge this holy day. And it says of, of the festivals of shelters or tabernacles, and the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Uh, begin celebrating the festival shelters on the 15th day of the appointed month. So it's a very specific time in the calendar of the Israel people. Five days after the day of atonement. Another holy day. Or holy time, rather. This festival to the Lord will last for seven days. Man, I'm telling you, sometimes we only give one day out of the week a year to, to, to devote to God. But he actually is here asking them to take seven whole days off of work. To spend with God. Imagine that. Um, I can't really take seven days off of work. Plus, if I am going to take seven days off a holiday, which is funny because in America we call a holiday vacation. The holidays are holy days. Vacations when you leave work to go be with your family. But here we call it holiday when we leave work to go be with our family. I don't know why, but it's not really a holy day, is it? Unless you make it holy, which you can, I guess. But the interesting thing is, in our minds, like, well, I'm seven, seven days off of work. I'm going to go have fun with my family and just be crazy and silly and just have a good time. But he says, no, I want you to do that and just give it to me. 
Oh, I don't know. I'll give you one of those days, but not all of them, you know. So here, the festival of the Lord will last for seven days. On the first day of the festival, you must proclaim an official day for holy assembly. So that people all got together for worship. When you do no ordinary work, again, it's not ordinary. It's not the mundane kind of life. It's something special, something out of the ordinary. For seven days, you must present special gifts to the Lord, giving to God, which is nothing we're called to do. The eighth day is another holy day on which you present your special gifts to the Lord. This will be a solemn occasion, and no ordinary work may be done that day. So the question might be asked, but God, why do we have to do this stuff? Why, why do this? Now, I, my mind best equates this with, like, say, communion. Because I think that's a very important thing that we do uh, as a church when we meet together every once a month on a Sunday. And what it is about, it's about remembering what Christ has done for us. So this here, I think God wanted his people of Israel, especially as a young nation, he wants them to be healthy. So he gave Israel a lot of important information to keep them healthy as a nation. And this is one of the things that he wanted Israel to do to be healthy as a nation. But there is a reason, there is a purpose behind this holy day. Remember, Going on, that this seven-day festival to the Lord, the festival of shelters, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month after you have harvested all the produce of the land. For seven days you must live outside in shelters. What? <laughs> so you have to leave your comfort of your home, go live in these shelters, like tents? Who wants to be in a tent? Tents are horrible. Camping's horrible. No, just joking, guys. I'm making fun of someone here. I don't like tents, but some people do. But they, you, you might have been happy with this festival. Me, I would have probably grudged this festival every year. I hate this festival. I don't want to go live in the shelters. But some people might have said, this is fun. But here they go. Go on to these tents, these shelters, these tabernacles. Why? Why, 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 why? Um, I, I underlined why. This will remind, again, it's about remembering things. This will remind each new generation, and not just for ourselves, but for our children, our grandchildren, yeah? Of Israelites that, that I have made, or each new generation of Israelites, that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. See, that's the reason why. He wants to remember that God rescued them from Egypt. And there's a lot, I have no time, there's a lot that can be said about the significance, the symbology of Israel, the captivity of Israel in the captivity of the world, the captivity of Satan. Now God rescues us. It's like how God rescued Israel from Egypt. He rescues us from the grip of the world and the demonic nature of the world and rescues us and saves us. So we need to remember and celebrate and recognize these things. Remember it and tell our children, tell our children's children, generation to generation. And then he ends by saying, I am the Lord, your God. Okay, I digress a little bit. Let's get back to the boom, the lights, the transfiguration, the metamorphosis. Well-intentioned idea, Peter, this idea about the festival, the shelters, but no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. That's what God says. So the wilderness travels are not, or, or rather are now over. The reason why I put that is because you don't need to go in shelters now. Don't need to, because we're not no longer in the wilderness. The Messiah is there. We've got the promise. It's right before us. Jesus is there. We don't need to, 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 to hang out in the wilderness. And we don't need to walk around and dwell in that stuff. We don't have to. Because here the Messiah is. Here the Son of God is. And here the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a key element of Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we don't need to. The promise is here. Just like with communion. We, do we have to celebrate communion when we're in heaven? I don't think we will. Because they'll be fulfilled. We're doing it until he comes. But when he comes, it's fulfilled. 
Celebration over. Yay. Now we're there. We're perfected. And here, Paul, Peter, and James, they're perfected in a sense that they don't longer have to dwell waiting for the promise because Jesus is there before them. Matthew 17, 5 to 8 says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud. Here's God speaking. Wow. Imagine hearing God's voice like this. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Give him. I, I like that. That's why I bolded it and highlighted it. When I do all my, I only have three things in my document that does this PowerPoint. I got italicized and highlighters, bold and, and underlining. I could probably do colors and whatnot, but, but when I do two things, that means I really like it. <laughs> Listen to him. Okay, here, what, what is God saying right now? What is God, think about what God's saying right now. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Shut up and listen to him. Peter's doing this, okay? I've got a good idea. And then God just shouts. He didn't even shout. God just whispered probably because his voice is so deep and strong. A whisper is strong enough to get your attention. No, Peter. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. Uh, there was a pastor, Romain, back in the days. I used to love him because he was, he was an ex-military guy. And he, he would totally... Uh, not be afraid. What he did was out of you know anger. It was just it was like it was like a firm daddy kind of guy. And I had to shout you out um, in love. But he was military guy, so it was very firm, loving but firm. You know nothing from. Oh boy. Actually, he liked me. He never actually bothered learning my name. He, I told him millions of times. Well, not millions, but a dozen times. My name's Scott, by the way. Okay, young man. That was his name, young man. He didn't care about my name. He's called me young man. I worked directly under him. He never bothered learning my name. What a guy. So Romain, he used to say this. I used to love it. He used to say, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should be doing twice as much listening than speaking. And I think that's what's going on here with Peter. Because I got a great idea. And God says, listen to Jesus. So here, what we see, mankind, through Peter earlier, had declared Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Through this, through however, the inspiration of God. Now, God Himself is declaring the deity of Christ and approval from the Father. So He's again, God saying, "This is my Son," and He is He's declaring the deity of Christ, which is the kind of cornerstone or the or the key, or, or as He says it, you know, this is the rock in which the church is built upon. This is the substance of the church, and what we're how we're going to grow. We trust in the deity of Christ. His kingdom is that kind of stuff. You know, the power of God and his Holy Spirit amongst us through Jesus Christ. Salvation here. He's here. He's divine. He's everywhere. Or two or more are gathered. He is there amongst us. Rescue. The power of the cross. All these things. It's all upon the deity of Christ. Everything Jesus says and does. Here's another thing, guys. No, here. Everything Jesus says and does is completely right. Do you really believe that? Are you convinced of that? When we read the word of God, the Bibles, and we see Jesus doing and saying things, do we really believe that everything he says is true? Well, I'm, I've got only about eight minutes until I'm totally over. As in everything he does is completely right and is worth modeling our life after. So when the disciples heard this, they fell face to the ground. I like this. They went, bam. That falling face down to me is like humility. It's like ugh, covering my face, going down, you know, terrified. Terrified. And the word terrified here is where we get the word phobia from. That's what it says in Greek. You know, phobeo. Phobia. That's, the, that's what it means in Greek. To be a fear. Afraid. 
It also means to have reverence, like this, like, like, wow, you're the alpha, <laughs> you know, you're the, you are God and, and I am not. And so it, it demonstrates humility and admittance of one's own weaknesses and shortcomings. So you fall face down, boom, reverence, to venerate, to treat with deference or reverential obedience. So he's falling down on the ground and they're like, oh, God has spoken, wow, this is what's going on here. That should be what happens when you hear God. It should be just an amazing thing like this. But Jesus came and touched them. I love, that's why I put three stars there. I want to talk about Jesus' touch real quick before we end. I love when Jesus touches. Because when he touches, healing's happening. When he touches, power happens. Amazing things happen. Think about already what we've seen with the touch of Jesus Christ. Just, just a random just graze of, you know, when the woman, the gentle woman, she just grabbed onto him and she was healed. And he goes, who touched me there? <laughs> you know, I mean, he knew what was up. But think about the touch of Jesus, how strong, how powerful it is. That's what I put here. The Greek word is hopto, hopto. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it has to do with anything with any English words. But it's interesting. It means to fasten to. He, the grab, he touched him. Fasten to. To adhere to. It's almost like he grabbed him with like, like, like a fatherly grab. Like, hey, it's okay. Hey, come on, guys. But look at this. Interesting. To fasten fire to a thing. To kindle. To set a fire. Or set a fire. God's touch should be, and I think that's like a lot of times we talk about like, you know, the Holy Spirit being like, described as a fire. Is that when, when God touches us, it should give us, it should fire us up, right? It should be powerful enough where we feel like ignited in our souls and our spirits. Here, these guys were just like, whoa, they're emptied. <laughs> they're probably, you know, it's that feeling you to fear where your guts just like turn inside out. But Jesus came and touched them and fired them up. Get up. Don't be afraid. And then when they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. Thank you.